and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. Today we are answering the bloody stupid question, how does metacognition enable people to be the heroes in dystopian LARP? So answering that question today, we have me. Hello, I am as ever your host, Mike. I am a learning designer with the Open University, imposter syndrome incarnate, and a man with a microphone. I am joined as ever by my capable co-host, I'm Mark Childs. I'm a senior learning designer at Durham University. And my usual tagline is that I got a PhD in education. And an, uh, a senior, what's it, of Dubery? Oh, yeah, the senior learning. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember Durham. Yeah, Durham. We could call it yeah. Dubery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think, that's the one. I think there's, a, there's a meeting next week. There's a three-day thing in my diary called Dubery. I'm not exactly sure what it's about. Hmm. And to help us answer this question, we are joined by Dr. Lecturer, Serious Play of the Lego Facilitatorer. Da, 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 da. Hi, I'm Dr. Laura Mitchell. I'm a lecturer in management at the University of York. And I have for a really long time, at least 10 years, been involved in writing, organising, running and playing in live action role play events. So, yes, I'm I'm not going to list them all because uh, names will have to be changed to protect the innocent and the guilty <laughs> alike. So, um, given that we all have about 15 different character names in addition to our real ones, it gets really confusing. Um, so, basically, I specialize in horror LARP. I like to take people, put them in dark spaces, convince them to run around in the woods, and then afterwards have a beer and tell everybody what a brilliant time they have being traumatized. Hmm. This feels like an advert almost. <laughs> and when I'm not doing that, <laughs> I teach students. <laughs> I love how that's like the secondary thing. <laughs> the, the question is, how do I tell the difference? That's the key question. Ah, yeah, which, which Laura do we have with us today? <laughs> both, both. Okay, so um, let's break down our question in the first part of our show. Of our show, the show. Part one, the question. So how does metacognition enable people to be the heroes in dystopian LARP? There's two components to this. One is metacognition and the other is LARP. Um, I guess suppose we'll get to the dystopian bit in a second. Let's talk about LARP first. Uh, LARP, that's an acronym, stands for Live Action Roleplay. We've done a D&D &D episode recently and they're not a million miles divorced, only when they are. Uh, so yeah, uh, Laura, you are our LARP spurt. Yeah, absolutely. So um, live action role play. Um, conveniently, I wrote a definition a couple of years ago and published it, which I have to hand. It's a leisure pursuit. So we're having fun based upon the acting out of an improvised narrative in the context of a particular setting or genre. Often things like Dungeons and Dragons, fantasy and so on. It has a varied history um, developing from a whole load of different activities, which means that you can actually adapt it to all kinds of other genres as well, including murder mystery, sci-fi, or just, you know, mundane sitcom, whatever is your preferred flavour. Hmm. So if you've done a, a murder mystery, like weekend or dinner or something, then you've done LARP. You have, you have. Or in fact, even if you've just impersonated your parents or had a go at pretending to be somebody off the telly, you have in fact engaged in live action role play. So sorry, it's not just for geeks. We all do it. <laughs> well, that's good because not a sports enthusiast Mark um, is famously very anti-geek. Yeah, Mark, have you, have you LARPed before? Um, I think we might have mentioned this when we were chatting about it, Playful Learning. The closest I've got to LARPing 
is a secret cinema thing where we, um, it was a Star Wars one, and it was like you all dress up as somebody from Star Wars. Well, you all dress up in pretty much as a Jedi, and you are given a kind of tribe to join. And then you're in a, it's pretty much an escape room mechanic. Lots of Jawas running around that look just like Jawas. Even if you look really closely, you could not see that it might have been a person in a suit. It looked like it was a Jawa and stormtroopers and everything. And basically you have to go around what looked like Mos Eisley and interact with people and gradually getting kyber crystals until you could, you had enough kyber crystals to, to go on to the next bit. And the next bit was where you all watched a film together. So that was kind of live action role play in that, although, you know, we didn't ha- we had a set character and there were people in that space that we were all interacting with in, as an in role. But yeah, it was good. It was really interesting experience. And I spent all my kyber crystals on somebody I met in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to start, and I didn't realize I'd been given these things and you were supposed to like use them to escape to the next bit to get onto a space shuttle to get to wherever the, the you know, to the Death Star where they were showing the um, Empire Strikes Back. And, so um, were you stranded in the bar? No, I stole some, basically. Uh, <laughs> I stole some from a Jawa that was walking past. And uh, he didn't notice them, and then that's why I had enough. And the friend I was with got some hurt some way. I think basically she flirted with uh, Lando Calrissian, and he just gave us some. <laughs> I have a suspicion that the brief for the actor playing Lando Calrissian was just flirt with anything that moves and anything that doesn't <laughs> give away crystals like that water. Yeah, yeah. So, so no, it was really so. Yeah, it, I got into it and. I did. I, I mean, like I mentioned in the uh, the last time we chatted, I felt I think it was the Owen Lars, and he was chatting about something, and I thought, well, I don't know what to say. Am I from Earth, and I'm talking about what Earth's like, or you know, I know more about Tatooine than I do about probably where I live, and yeah, I still have nothing to say here. But <laughs> I, I liked, <laughs> and I ca- I just found the whole improv thing really difficult. I've tried. Oh, I have tried LARPing in Second Life which should have been a bit easier because you have an avatar. But even then, I'm in um, a steampunk sim, and I'm supposed to be using Victorian language in a kind of sim-type, in a Victorian-type way. And I just thought, I can't do this. I can't use Victorian English. And so I just froze again and just teleported out of there, which, of course, I didn't have the option within a, in an actual real <laughs> space. But, um, but yeah, No, you just, you just have you- to do, like, Zoyberg. So, um, so yeah, it was fun. I just think I had some trouble with the improv elements. Yeah, improvisation is really hard, and especially like when you're trying to think about what you would say in a normal situation, mm. and then on top of that, you've got another layer going. Oh, but what would my character say? Would they say this? Mm. Are they the kind of person that would make some kind of dramatic outburst here? Because actually, I'm really like socially not that kind of person, and I'm going to have to force myself to do it. it doesn't mm. feel natural, you know that that dynamic is challenging to manage, and you you get better with practice, but it's it doesn't just magically happen. It's, it's almost like one set of abstraction less than communicating through a puppet, isn't it? Because a lot of people find it easier to kind of maybe say things that uh, they might struggle to say or do things they might struggle to do with a puppet. But when the puppet you're using is your own mouth, it's perhaps a little bit too close to their own skin to... Um yeah, well, yeah. As, as you say, it takes a bit of takes a bit of. Pra- I mean, Laura, you 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 run, facilitate, and plan a lot of these sessions. Yes. How, 
what are kind of what's what's the kind of the arc, the journey for people getting into this? Uh, okay, so for new people, for people who are new to live action role play, they often have the benefit of being surrounded by people who've been doing it a while. So um, when you sort of start participating in a live action role play game, it's not very frequently the case that everybody is new. Normally, there's just a few new people. And then there's some people who've done it a couple of times or people who've done it a lot of times. And they sort of help lift the people who are new to it. They they sort of feed them lines. They encourage them. Um, often in this age of social media, there's a lot of pre-game type things. Um, some approaches to live action role play also include pre-game workshops. Um, so I'm quite intrigued, actually. The secret cinema thing, um, the way in which that works and a lot of similar things like that work, especially the way Disney's using live action role play type activities now, is... It, it's a fantastical world that a lot of people are already really familiar with, really into. Um, so you don't need to do like a lot of pre-game research or reading into the type of character you want to play because you've already seen the movies or you've read the books or you've watched the TV show and you have an image in your head of like what the main characters are like. Yeah. And it's the same like if you want to do a fantasy LARP, one of the things I think is hilarious in fantasy LARP is how many times in a fantasy movie or fantasy novels does a character ever go to the toilet? <laughs> right? They don't. They don't. Unless it's hugely dramatically appropriate, they don't. But <laughs> Going like, dramatic toilet. <laughs> dramatic toilet, yeah. Like, you know, oh my God, the monster's going to eat me. I'm going to wet myself, that kind of thing, right? Um, unless it's part of the storyline, they just don't do it. Because why would the director put that on screen? But if you're role-playing for like multiple hours and you're eating and you're drinking, you're at a murder mystery dinner party, at some point, you're going to need to go, Right. So you have to extend your knowledge of the genre, the setting, the feel of the social environment and think, okay, what would going to the loo be like in this situation? <laughs> <laughs> and how can I reconcile that with like the real world demands of civilization of going to the loo? And it's amazing how people improv around that. Like I've been to fantasy events. I've even written about it where people had this whole like narrative about how they had to go and pray at their ancestor's shrine at least three times a day. <laughs> they had to stop all these religious observances. And you had to go in a group because it was dangerous. You might be attacked by animals on the way. All this kind of stuff. And it was just so that the ladies could go out the loo together. <laughs> so yeah, like all of these things, it's about what works with the collective understanding of the narrative and, and what's going to encourage the right sort of almost emotional atmosphere. Why dystopian LARP when dystopian LARP and like reality must surely be kind of bleeding into each other more and more day by day? <laughs> yeah. Here we go. <laughs> yes. So I will be honest about this. Um, the team that I currently work with, so we are, um, so we're called Reality Checkpoint LARP. Um, there are a group of us, like uh, quite a few of us. I am not the lead person. That's uh, Christopher Lamb. And a lot of what we have run over the past seven years uh, has been subject to accusation of fortune telling. <laughs> 
And there are some people who actually think uh, our main writer, who's the person in charge, um, is like bringing about reality changes to reality <laughs> by the way because we had a larp about a global pandemic before the global pandemic wow. we had a larp about um a sort of nuclear missile launch shortly before there were escalating tensions between the US and North Korea about the possibility of nuclear missile launch it was really scary <laughs> um and this is one among many reasons why uh, unlike secret cinema and immersive theater experiences, a lot of live action role play experiences in the UK, not all, but a lot, um, only run once. They do not run multiple times for different groups of people. You run them once, you finish, you move on, you come up with a new project because you were too traumatized by the last <laughs> one to do it again. Because <laughs> I was reading up on this a bit. I have done some preparation. <gasps> I know. And... Um, I was looking at a thing on Nordic LARPs, and mm. one of them there is it's a con it's the LARP is a conversion therapy camp. <laughs> oh, and yeah, it, oh. that was that yeah. was yeah that 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 one was rather notorious. Mm. There have been debates among LARPers about whether it is legitimate to run LARPs about that kind of thing. Nordic LARP is... So, um, Nordic LARP is a particular style that is associated with particular European LARPs. And nobody is quite sure on, like, nailing down the exact distinction between what constitutes Nordic LARP. However, there are specific things about it that are characteristics. Um, one of which is that Nordic LARP tends to have few rules... It tends to operate on a system of consent and improv, and it tends to run with small groups. UK LARP tends to be more likely to use a system of rules to facilitate play. I mean, we often, especially in fantasy LARP, we have referees um, who actually sort of their job is to make sure people are following the rules and that safety um, and insurance are all like taken care of. <laughs> And sort of associated with that, actually, is the fact that Nordic LARP often tends to explore really controversial topics um, mm -hmm. and controversial experiences. But I guess that's also part of the whole kind of like Nordic, Scandi noir, like mm -hmm. dark sort of side of wanting to explore the human psyche. Yeah. And I am interested in that, but I'm sort of a little bit more of the... Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, if the aliens are arriving and they're going to blow up our world, are we going to lie down and put paper bags over our heads kind of approach? Very British sort of <laughs> angle on these. It's very dark humor, sort yeah. of Lucky let's just keep cross, calm, carry on, pretend it's not happening mm. uh, approach to life. Um, whereas I think some other cultures, they're more interested in really sort of eviscerating themselves and seeing what happens. Yeah, I suppose it's kind of the stereotype of why would you want to pretend to be a dark elf when existence is already so dark? Kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that, there is that. Um, but also, yeah, you, and you might actually offend the elves. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, no, that, you're right. That is the... Yeah, absolutely. They really believe uh, yeah. that they're a gnome. I'm instantly reminded of the Eurovision movie. Um, absolutely. That was where yeah, my I, mind I, went I, as I like well. that movie, but that is actually based on reality. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that is still the best bit of that movie. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've howled with laughter quite so hard since. Like, that really... Uh, anyway, sorry, this isn't this isn't the movie review podcast. Um, yeah, any, any niche of, of geekery, any where in the world i love that there's always just beautiful depth and stratification to it almost infinitely like it's it's never just like oh larp is this thing it's like no larp is this thing here and it's this thing here and there's a million like and it's just infinite depth and i love it i love geeks for being able to do that i'm conscious of the time we should probably get onto metacognition is there anything else we want to cover on larp why why do people why do people larp why do people larp why would they do that what's wrong with being a person (laughs) what's wrong with being joe bloggs accountant well, Joe Bloggs accountant might be quite happy being Joe Bloggs accountant, but let's face it, we watch things on TV and we sometimes go, wouldn't it be cool if I was Han Solo? Or wouldn't it be cool if I was on that ship in Aliens fighting the monsters, you know, trying to survive? And you kind of go, I would totally survive that. They're doing stupid things. Why are they running in a straight line when they could be running <laughs> sideways and then they wouldn't be crushed by the giant rolling Yes, thing? oh my God, yes. <laughs> and you know what? Put people in that situation in a LARP game, they run in a straight line because when you're terror, when you're under the influence of fear and terror, you don't think straight. <laughs> you do stupid things. So uh, I think we've got a LARP, metacognition. We've mentioned it at least three times on the podcast Possibly mm. three times per episode. We never actually defined it. What the hell is metacognition? Fortunately, we have two doctors with us. <laughs> oh, the two doctors. Um, did you say you wanted me to take this, Laura? Yeah. And um, basically, yeah. Uh, don't get it wrong, Mark. <laughs> Laura's, Laura's marking you. We, like can, an essay. we can make up for some time with this because it's. I can. I do it in one sentence. Metacognition. <laughs> if I can say it right. <laughs> metacognition is learning about learning or thinking about thinking. That's it. Sounds simple, doesn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, that's all that meta means. It means like beyond or on top of. So it's it's that extra level. So it's like reflecting on how am I learning about this? What things work for me when I learn this? What are my, you know, I was going to say learning styles. That's not the word I meant. Um, <laughs> let's not go there. That's not good. Let's not go there. Uh, that's another episode entirely. Oh, it was another episode entirely. Um, but you know, what do I? Uh, what are my strengths and weaknesses, and how I've learned this? And then I think perhaps, perhaps when we get into the LARPing, reflecting on your identity a bit as a learner. So you don't just go in and learn. You think, well, what do I need to support me as a learner? How do I? How am I placed in this? And I think that's that's kind of the essence of it. I mean, we could break it down into you know sort of different things. So you know, about oh, self-regulation as well. So what things am I, how do I regulate my learning here or how do I regulate my emotions here? That sort of stuff. So it's it's not it's not a complicated thing. It is just that sitting back and thinking about how you're thinking and taking that space out and looking at the way that you may have evolved as a learner and then applying that to further learning. Uh, I think it is complicated. Although it's a, it's a, it's a multi-syllable word, but it, as a principle... <laughs> It's a, it's a pretty Easy. basic thing, I think. Ah, I see. I think you're I think you're coming at this from the genius perspective. I think it's not as um simple and straightforward as you're as you're alluding to. Easy oh, to define, hard to do, I think. Mm. 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's I think it's one thing to say, you know, thinking about or sort of one thing to say, oh, and this we're gonna be reflecting and thinking about thinking. I think it's another thing entirely to actually have the tools at your disposal to, you know, the 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 language uh, and the approaches and the kind of the mental mechanisms to do things like, you know, structured feedback about, you know, structured reflection about your own thinking or to um to really kind of like critically examine one's own thoughts or um, you know, thinking back to Mesero's transformative learning big metacognitive elements that there's a lot of kind of introspection needing to be open to thinking about um, uh, your own thinking. It requires quite a bit of abstraction, doesn't it? So like in order to be reflective about your own learning, you have to be able to kind of separate yourself from yourself, which is quite a hard thing to do. You have to kind of imagine that you are someone else looking at what you are doing and going, is that a good practice? Mm-hmm. Which means, first of all, you need to be aware of what you're doing before you can even reflect on it. And I think that's something a lot of students struggle with at all levels. I was going to say, um, do you remember our little mini recently, uh, the one you recorded with uh, uh, Dave, the Duke of Old, mm-hmm. uh, and his wonderful uh, life hack on treating work like you're playing a game, as in, just as you're saying there, Laura, abstracting yourself. And it allows you to make different decisions because you're taking yourself out of that context and going, well, what would a person who actually wants to do something strategic here do or what would a person who's actually looking after their own well-being uh, well he said in this what situation? would who didn't actually care about the result do not that he didn't care about it but that actually by taking those stresses out of that particular specific situation you end up making better decisions because you're not beating yourself up at every decision and of course he does care and because of the role he has but he said by by putting himself in the position where he doesn't by having that kind of dispassionate and you're saying right standing outside yourself and looking at it from a, a dispassionate perspective means that you actually do that job better. I mean that's I yeah. don't know how you are on Vulcan philosophy. <laughs> but that's how not my, but... not my strong suit. I'm, I'm not gonna answer <laughs> questions on mastermind about it. I'll admit. Okay. But this is what kind of Surak oh we haven't done Star Trek and I haven't done Star Trek enough yet. This is why it comes through again. But this is what Surak <laughs> was talking about about managing emotions. It isn't that Vulcans don't have emotions, it's just that they manage them by standing outside of themselves and looking at a dis- potential display of emotion as a as a, a dispassionately and with some sense of kind of sardonic oh god you're not going to do that are you and that then is how they that's how they manage their emotions and sort of bring them down a bit by actually standing outside and looking at themselves dispassionately that's how Sirac did his whole teachings thing so and that's kind of metacognition in itself but that's like hardline metacognition that's really getting to a point where you are a completely different person looking at yourself with with some contempt to some extent in order to modify and self-regulate your behavior it's all a bit Kohlberg though isn't it it's all a bit you lost me you know it's all kind of drawing on that idea that there is a hierarchy of learning development and sort of like emotional development throughout childhood as you are exposed to more diverse social environments um, which was critiqued by Carol Gilligan um, for being too masculinist, for being too abstract and saying that it privileges abstract ideas about like why we do certain things or why we say certain things are more ethical or better than others. And the sort of the feminist care ethics perspective on this would be 
emotions help us direct attention to important or valued connections in life and therefore like it's worth paying attention to emotions and like the role of emotions in decision making is not like a retrograde anti-progressive uncivilized thing they've actually served as a really good purpose over our history as human beings (laughs) okay i don't i think they've probably had a more negative impact i don't know i know because i sort of empathy and pity and those sorts of things kind of do help i guess ideally you'd have as many different things in your metacognitive toolkit as possible and ding, be able ding, to switch ding. between them and going actually something that's dispassionate and unemotional would give me this exact this area but something where i'm engaging my emotion makes me look at this uh, in this way uh, or directs my attention this way and moving between those two states probably gives you and any others that you can think of in your toolkit is probably what's going to give you the best answer overall really and it's not either or by any means well, I say you look at things and there's like frameworks that you'd use for uh, structuring things like the CBT, for example, mm-hmm. a cognitive behavioral therapy um, asks you to reflect both on your, you know, your gut, your emotional reaction, but also your um, kind of your objective, logical uh, understanding of situations. Um, and there's conversational frameworks as well. I think um, we might have referred to the ORID one before. Uh, so objective, reflective, um, inf- uh, inferred um, and decisional. But mm-hmm. it's about kind of drawing in both the, the cold, hard Vulcan perspective uh, and also <laughs> the soft, squishy, I don't know, Ferengi. I, I'm struggling to think of <laughs> Klingon. cuddly little guys. <laughs> they're, pretty much, um, they're pretty much id-driven, aren't they, Klingons? Yeah, Klingons. Klingons are pretty emotional. Yeah. Or just, yeah, what would Kirk's trousers do right now? You know, that <laughs> oh, kind of... Oh, no, don't blame Kirk. Go with the Betazoid option, sure. Yeah, oh, they're yeah. the ones I was trying to think of, the Betazoids, yes. Ah, uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Down the Troy Star and HR. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, <laughs> like, uh, oh, we've 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 lost, we've we've gone away from metacognition into Star we, Trek. We, we have, another, we have. I this is not a Star Trek the, Another thing is to. Actually, <laughs> it is now. One of the things that's great about you know virtual spaces is that you can look at yourself as an avatar on the screen and create some distance between you and that. You know, you see your avatar doing things you've directed that avatar to do things but you're also standing back looking at that avatar doing things that you would never do like i don't know dancing on a table or whatever uh, or going to a bdsm club or something and you're thinking hmm what, what a specific example there? mark what sorry what a specific example what are you doing <laughs> in your random, virtual worlds <laughs> <laughs> so but there's that that kind of double Double, th- double thinking? No, that's, it's not double thinking because that means something's very specific and different. There's that double perspective of the actor acting and then the viewer viewing the acting and you are both at the same time but being able to stand apart from yourself. And within a virtual space, you actually are two different people, which makes it easier. When you're actually in the environment, it makes it very difficult to stand outside yourself and see what you're doing from an external perspective because you can't be external because... You're in your own head, but it's a way of getting out your own head to look at what's going on in your head in order to change what's in your head. That's it. In a so, so what I would like to say to that, mm-hmm. however, is that the person who wrote about virtual identities that I am really familiar with, who 
had some really cool stuff on this was Irving Goffman in the 1960s yes. who wrote about yes. the presentation of self in everyday life. And his stuff on that suggests that our virtual identities, he wasn't writing in a time where you had computer virtual avatars. He was talking about our pictures of ourselves in our heads when we think about ourselves as dramatical characters, mm-hmm. right? So we have that experience of thinking about ourselves from an almost external point of view, when we put ourselves into situations where our expected identities come into conflict with other expected identities because we have a mixed audience. Classic example, your friends and your grandma are at the same dinner table. How do you behave? Yes. (laughs) You know, the sorts of language, the sort of even the, the expressions that you might use, the physical expressions you might use in front of those different audiences will be different because you are the same person, but also different people to those groups of people. And you have to try and compromise and make something that works. And that feels really uncomfortable. And what Goffman it would be saying was that we are LARPing every time we're interacting with another person. Yes. Or even yes. a cat, possibly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to say, had we drifted off, but we hadn't. No, no. because because I have this whole thing about how, you know, academics going to conferences are LARPing. Mm-hmm. Right. We have all of the trappings of live action role play. There are spaces when we attend conferences where you can stop being your conference self and go back to being either your personal self. You can pick up the phone and speak to your spouse. You know, there's a nice quiet corner or you can stop being guys who are here to attend the conference and start being guys who are recording our podcast for our (laughs) podcast audience, right? You guys had that little table at the Playful Learning Conference in a corner. So we have in-character spaces and out-of-character spaces. We have front stage spaces and backstage spaces if we wanted to use the Goffman analogy. And as we move between those spaces, we have all become pretty good at managing different identities or different expectations. LARP is just a more advanced version of that. Are we are we answering the question now? We, I feel we, like we're starting we're to answer the question with this. Segue, I think. What we've was built the question? Up for a segue there. So the question was, how does metacognition enable people to be the heroes in dystopian LARP? Mm-hmm. It feels like there we, we are... It feels like we're brushing into answering this mm-hmm. question. I wonder if I can transition. Stop but the are there part. any other components of metacognition that need to be mentioned at this point? Nope. <laughs> That's a very definitive answer. Nope, we're done. I was loving the literature of you, like, back and forth, by the way. That was incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, except anybody that's looking at virtual worlds needs to start by reading Goffman. Yes, they do. Yes, we can agree on that. I I agree as well. Every single thing that Goffman (laughs) has ever written. And then then they need to read Victor Turner because Victor Turner's definition of liminality is something that every contemporary academic writing about liminal spaces gets wrong. Almost every almost yeah, everyone. I have I don't claim to have read everyone. But I have I may have a bee in my bonnet about that. So we've um we've talked about LARP, we've talked about metacognition. Let's bring the two back together okay. in the second part of the show where we answer our question. Part two. The answer. So how does metacognition enable people to be the heroes in a dystopian LARP? So we got as far as I think to talking about metacognition and about sit about how an essential part of that is being able to stand outside yourself 
in order to look at yourself, not necessarily as two different characters or with some sort of multiple personality thing going on, but looking, being able to examine your cognition while your cognition's happening. And then I think Laura drew the example between that and the um, out-of-character spaces where things are kind of discussed in that sort of way. And that seemed like the natural break to segue into this section. Does that sound right, Laura? Yeah, about right. Thumbs up. About right. Um, So the thing is that when you are thinking about yourself in an educational environment or in a fantasy LARP, you're normally thinking, am I winning, right? Am I the big damn hero right now? Am I defeating the evil wizard? What am I doing, right? And because a lot of fantasy LARP is kind of based on this idea of the big hero, it's the same in a lot of other like narratives that we have in like lit- pop culture, literature, you know, are you like the superhero? What are you doing? And it's like, we live normal lives, people. We don't have to be doing like world-class superhero stuff. We can just be doing okay, right? But also, let's face it, we know do we learn from things when we're doing well, when we're not reflecting on what we did because we're just doing it and we're like, we're winning, yay. You don't sit down and go, why did I win? Why was my essay great? Why have I had a great learning session when I've just got it? No, you learn when it all goes horribly wrong. Why? Because it makes you stop, reevaluate, and think about what was wrong with the person you were performing at that time. So, or well, I mean, this is my theory anyway. So in a LARP setting, I run a horror game, right? How do you win in the zombie apocalypse? This is an open question. Any answers? Don't get bit. <laughs> Don't get bit. Get to the helicopter. Be the last person standing, right? It's actually a no-win scenario because if you're the last person standing, you're abandoned, alone. There is no future for humanity. It's just you alone against the world. You're going to get dysentery probably in a couple of months' time. But, you know, we'll we'll end the story. So, you know, you're winning. But um, so that sort of particular narrative, that sort of no-win scenario, puts people into a situation where they don't expect to be a great big hero in the story. They don't expect to be Conan the Barbarian. They don't expect to be, you know, Han Solo. They don't expect to be the winner. They just want to get by. They just want to live another day, another hour. Maybe, as in one player in one of my end-of-the-world games, they just want to phone their neighbor and say, I think I'm going to die. Can you look after the cat? That's so bleak. Oh, my God. That's heartbreaking. It was was a beautiful moment. They had a brilliant time at my game. But why? Why? Because they knew it was a no-win scenario. So how are they winning, right? Because they're engaging in metacognition. They're thinking about not just what they're doing as a character. They're stepping outside of their role in character and thinking out of character, what is my role in the story here? What is my contribution to my own life experience, the experience of other people playing? Am I going to die in the most exciting, dramatic way ever that I'm going to die in someone else's arms? They're going to confess their undying love for me. Everybody's going to cry. 
you know, like it's going to be a big deal. I'm going to have a big impact. I'm going to change the world for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And they can, you can only have that perspective by being able to simultaneously inhabit the character and recognize that the character is just part of a game, just part of a story. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I think what we were saying earlier that we're always LARPing all the time, but this is the problem about studying identity, is that it is so innate, that actual act of putting on an act, fitting into a particular role within a social group or whatever, that we're unless you're actually pretty much tuned on metacognitively, you're not aware of that because you're not aware of a suit as a costume or um you know, or if you're an academic, jeans and a scruffy jumper as an ac- as a as a costume or whatever. And yet, hey, we have lanyards. We have lanyards, man. <laughs> yeah, lanyard, lanyards is part of the costume. Whereas actually, when you're dressed up as an orc, it's bloody obvious you're wearing a costume. And so, therefore, that that kind of examining your character, or metaxis is the word. So, being in the character and observing the character simultaneously, that's a lot easier to do because it's so much more aware that you're a. Uh, you're so much more aware that you are a character because, and that you're wearing a costume because it's not that part of normal life. Whereas the normal costume we wear as part of our normal lives is. I guess that makes sense. And so, like a double extraction. So, kind of by being more abstracted from your normal context, it allows you to abstract yourself um, from this character. Or it underlines the abstraction in that there is an abstraction all the time that we, but that we don't notice because it's. It's all the time, whereas in a LARP, I don't know. Laura's the expert. What do you reckon? Well, so we did. I did write this paper with a colleague of mine, um, Dr. Chloe Buckley, uh, Jermaine Buckley, uh, at Manchester Metropolitan University, about how in horror games it actually challenges your very ontology. So I'm not going to define that. That's definitely going to take the <laughs> podcast in a different direction. But we were basically saying that because you know the game is fake because you know it's a scary game where you're running through the woods being chased by a monster the woods are real the running is real the monster is fake but this is not something you do in your everyday life and it does make you more aware of the fact that in the real world the woods are real you might walk the dog there but most of our lives most of our day-to-day lives we spend in very constructed socially created spaces which are not like natural they're they're part of our civilization but they're not naturally occurring spaces which means we can create them in different ways we could change them we can control them and often you know like you go to a bank you think well There are rules here about queuing and who gets to do what and who's behind the counter and who's in front of the counter. You know, you're running through the woods being chased by a monster. You're like, actually, all of these rules are made up. (laughs) What else is made up? Who even am I? What am I doing here? Why am I running through the woods? I could turn an ankle and hurt myself. Oh, wait, because I believe, because I believe that something's going on. Believe I'm part of something. And so... You know, you recognize that what you're part of is part of a game. You recognize that you're part of part of a story. Um, and there's no reason why we can't use that in educational settings with students and various type of learners mm. to make them think, you know what? We are outside of an everyday family context or an everyday business context or an everyday, like, I don't know, camping in the hills context. We're in a teaching room. 
And all of the rules here are things that you have culturally absorbed through your previous experiences of teaching. And many of those rules and regulations have given you an idea that you're in a specific role and part of that role is to be passive. And we want to encourage you to actively reflect on what you're doing. So maybe we need to encourage you to perceive that all of these rules are made up. Yeah. Is that too heavy? No, no, it's just a big idea. It's a big, good idea. And it's just going to take a minute to digest, I think. <laughs> it's prompting a lot of stuff which will not be podcast worthy because it'll just be bleh from me. Let's just we'll give you five you're... minutes of rambling, Michael, <laughs> and we'll see what happens. Mike's just realised his entire life is fake. <laughs> oh, it kind of is, isn't it? Because, <laughs> yeah, why is one system of... Um, you know, made up rules where you are an orc or um, in a haunted house uh, and your spooky ghost psychic detectives, Mysterium, best game ever, but your spooky psychic detectives, which actually come to think of it is basically LARP, that's tabletop LARP. But how is that any different from being in what seems like a never-ending Teams meeting where you're playing the person who really sits there while his brain gently dissolves out yeah. his nose, thinking, just like literally looking forward to a cup of tea so much? just so so goddamn much and then you examine your value system and you go god damn this this shit's messed up sorry i'm just i'm all over the place with this today i was very grumpy today and this is really <laughs> we should um we should start pulling this into yeah, okay. um directly into an education setting i think the third part of the show is actually gonna be the best way to do that okay uh, is there anything else we want to cover because i think laura you have beautifully wrapped this up with a bow on but are there any other key points you want to cover in regards to the question so um, something that I think is quite interesting is the way in which people are now trying to um, integrate live action role play ideas or play ideas or games into an educational setting. Mm, yeah. Um, and there have been some really interesting areas that I've sort of heard just some gossip about. And I think this is one to watch in the future um, because some of the things that we've talked about, like managing um, transitions between different spaces, learning about the fact that we do put on different characters in different spaces and perhaps doing that on purpose as part and parcel of how we educate learners is something that we can look at integrating in a small way. Um, I've heard an awful lot over the past year about colleagues introducing a variety of different games and types of games to revision sessions, which I think are an excellent setting for this whole metacognitive process to take pay place, um, especially if we're looking at things like undergraduate learners who are doing this on a modular basis and they're progressing in a degree. Simply because, you know, the end of the module is not the end of their study. It's still beneficial for them to have that reflective process. And one of the key things that I think is going to be interesting in that is whether um, organizations, institutions, higher education institutions take it seriously enough to say, you know what, maybe we could revisit some of the ways in which we deliver our teaching scenarios in order to facilitate that. If we can support staff by training them in facilitation, not just in education. If we can provide support services for students to try and slowly but surely drift them out of the traditional sort of passive learner model by getting them to think about their learner identity 
as a role. You know, if we could encourage them to take on a role that was something like, hey, what would you be learning if you were an elf right now? I don't know. Some crazy ideas like that at like student induction and thing might be a really fun and interesting way to go in improving the educational experience for people. I think it's an interesting thing to point out, though, as a kind of direction of travel, because I've definitely noticed um, in a lot of practice based postgrad stuff at the moment, particularly things centered around leadership. Well, the best ways that people are talking about and discussing leadership at the moment is in kind of role play scenarios. Little kind of it's and it's not straight LARP, but it's kind of its flavor of LARP. It's flavor of role play associated with, hey, here's a, here's a leadership scenario. You are ex leader. What are you doing? And this is both kind of like you know, uh, sort of uh, as an individual level asynchronously, but it's also things that are being pulled up in kind of like group discussions and things. It's you are this character. You are abstracted into this character. What are you doing here? You know, are you doing change management or hit them with your axe for ten damage? It's um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting direction of travel just because it feels like there are more elements of that coming through. I wonder if some of that is actually because there's a I don't want to say a younger generation of academics coming through who are just nerdier you know played played more games growing up read maybe i'm not gonna say read fewer books but maybe read more books by Anne mccaffrey and robin hobb or something more of the ludo culture is happening Mm. i think as well it's it's also a thing where it's not just that perhaps there's different academics or younger academics but there's a bit of a structural change in the academic landscape as we move towards more roles focused on things like um, dissemination of science um, sort of scholarship focused uh, practice as well as research focused practice and taking that seriously and investing in it and developing people in it I think is also perhaps sort of like boosting this focus Mm. and I, I do wonder um, some of the things that have happened through the COVID pandemic in LARP were about how do we do LARP online, mm. right? How do we LARP over Zoom? How do we LARP via text message, these kind of things? And that has drawn people's attention more towards how do we manage like video representations of ourselves rather than in-person or just narrated versions of ourselves. Um, And it might be interesting to see if we see that coming through in education as well. Maybe there's going to be something where we encourage students more. If if Teams meetings will be with us forevermore, maybe there's going to be a, a role in educating students and learners in how to present yourself in a virtual Teams meeting hmm. um, to best effect and so on. Well, I mean, the Teams thing really plays back into that offstage role that Goffman talks about in that we do, it's more difficult to present your professional self when you're at home and the the cat jumps on you or the kids run in or whatever. And that's a that was an interesting and constant debate over the lockdowns was how do you maintain this professional image and how you should do it and should always make sure you're wearing a suit and tie and the kids are locked out of the room. And then a whole bunch of other people saying, no, it's your authentic self. The students see that you're struggling too and that makes everybody happier. And I think there has been an erosion of that role-playing to some extent, that that professional demeanor role-playing because of lockdown and our Teams meetings and the cat jumping on you, on me anyway, every few <laughs> minutes. And yeah, so I think that is a key thing that's come out of it. 
a teammate of mine, Haley, got uh, mauled by her dog uh, in our team meet. Not like mauled, mauled, but like just literally mm. all over her, fussing her. And bless her, she tried to keep an absolutely blank face during the whole thing. <laughs> and it was the funniest thing because it was, it was a good like couple of minutes. The dog Cusco was really like <laughs> all over her, going absolutely berserk. And the she worst was just is like, when the cat jumps mm-hmm, on me mm-hmm. and then lifts the tail up. Oh, no, you have to go, oh, I'm really sorry about the cat anus. Because <laughs> 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 you cannot pass it off that nothing's happened. And there's this, like, I don't know, anyway. <laughs> Let's maybe bring all of this together, then, in some tips for your own practice in the third part of the show. Part three. Practical tips. Okay, so... Metacognition, uh, enabling people to be their own heroes in LARP and how people can bring this into their own education practice. Uh, What tips do we have? Who wants to kick us off? I would definitely recommend encouraging learners to intentionally come up with things like their worst possible answer. So, you know, sort of like being, being heroes by sort of saying, what is the worst possible thing that you could face here? Like, construct the monster. Construct the most terrible essay that you could ever write. Would it just say, I am a fish, to go with, like, the Douglas Adams theme? Or, like, would it actually be some kind of monstrosity, 10,000 words long when the word limit is 500 words? Like, what would that be? And how can you then learn from it by going, hey, well, I'm not that guy. Mark, um, I yeah, I can't speak to the LARPing stuff, but I guess just provide opportunities for metacognition and even assess metacognition. So build it into your courses, have a reflective stage, because I think there's one thing. And so, for instance, if you're trying to teach your students how to I don't know, do better in exams, don't just examine them over and over again, but have a point where they're going, well, what's worked here? What hasn't worked here? Um, how can I do better next time? So consolidating their practice by reflecting on it and thinking about how they could change it next time. And also, I guess that works for yourself. Uh, I think one of the great thing, one of the good things, possibly the only good thing, apart from the actual recognition itself, that comes out of um, professional recognition things like Seamalt, Mike, um, and things like that, <laughs> is that that they offer those points for metacognition they think you think about what is my identity you think about what have i been thinking about how good am i at thinking and those sorts of things so get involved in that sort of stuff because that space that it forces you to create to think about that sort of thing actually is a actually is a really useful moment to build into your into your career pattern as well i think that's I'll tell you, I'll build on Mark's point, actually, that whole point about the importance of taking time to reflect on your own metacognition and your own practice as an educator. There are certainly ways in which you could LARP. I know I've spoken to some colleagues who've said they find conferences really intimidating because conferences are where research people go. And a lot of um, academics like myself who are on a scholarship pathway, they go, oh, I'm not sure I feel comfortable at conferences. I don't have the right personality type and so on. Well, why not create a LARP character who would go to conferences and put on that role and see how you feel about it? Um, And on the flip side, perhaps there's also a, um, a good 
sort of objective in trying to push institutions to recognize that scholarship and education and becoming a better educator will also take time for reflection and considered practice in the same way that, you know, people reflect on their research methodology. Maybe there should be something where there's dedicated spaces, dedicated times for uh, practitioners to reflect on their teaching methodology as a key part of um, their professional development time. These were really, really, really good tips. Oh, I feel like I've got nothing well, left pod- in the can. Some of podcasting, because podcasting is a lot of that's metacognitive. Mm. Um, so mm, that's really, mm. yeah, I guess maybe. Okay, so a top tip um, around that, I guess, would be Help people find the things that allow them to mode switch. So I'll help people find the opportunities, the things in their kind of their life and their interests, which allows them to step out of themselves and use that perhaps as a way to um, scaffold up the the start of, uh, of metacognition. For example, I'd definitely be better at podcasting um, a reflection than I would be actually just sort of sitting down and trying to write a reflection. My other thought was going to be basically saying, ah, no, I haven't got anything. You guys have just you've absolutely smashed out the part of the pair of you. I think that if you took all the ums out of that, you'd probably have a, an answer there. And, and the middle bit. Yeah, and the and middle probably... bit. <laughs> but there is, it, I think that's, that's the reason why I've got drawn to this is because, well, I've mentioned this in the, in the paper, didn't I? It's like there's a performance thing and not found the right performance stuff. When I've done stuff on stage, it is, I am enacting something. I'm basically, I'm, I'm, I'm acting a version of me who's not absolutely shit scared of being on stage. (laughs) And that's hard, but that's hard. And it's actually quite an act. Whereas actually, I don't feel the same sense of level of tension here, but I still get a chance to be somebody I'm not because I'm engaging in a different way and putting on stupid voices that I wouldn't do normally and all that kind of thing. And, you know, that's extended Alan Bennett impersonation. I wouldn't do that in the real world, but that was great ludic space of a podcast i'm freed up to do that sort of stuff so what you're saying is i think this is find the thing that enables you to role play being somebody that you're not normally and through that acquire the skills that enable you to function differently in your everyday life and by having more different ways to function you actually become more competent at more things Beautifully articulated, Mark. In fact, there's an episode of The Simpsons on it, isn't there, where I think Homer's got like bowling shoes or something that make him really good at bowling. Mm-hmm. But that's what you said. I'm just reflecting back what you said. No, I think you summarised it much better, Mark, as always. <laughs> okay, so all them qualifications coming together in some sort of phrasing. <laughs> Is there anything else we want to talk about in regards to this, or shall we close off the show? I think we've made some. We've got some absolute gold in this one. This is great. I just want to say what a pleasure it's been to be involved. This is such a brilliant podcast and I've just loved being a guest today. So thank you guys for having this opportunity. It is just so amazing. It's been lovely having you on. (laughs) So I think we have answered our question, how does metacognition enable people to be heroes in their own dystopian LARP? We've given you some pretty damn good tips. Mark and Laura have given you some really, really good damn good tips. We'll see if mine makes it to the edit. What more do you want, you greedy people? Greedy listeners, you've had your fill. Bugger off. Um, <laughs> Laura, thank you so very much for joining us for this. It's been wonderful having you on again. Um, do you have anything you want to plug? 
just uh, in general, keep your eye out for great opportunities with LARP in your future. And if anybody is interested in trying to design or develop educational LARPs for use in their own settings and they want some advice, I am more than happy to assist. Uh, just get in touch. You can reach me at my email at the University of York, uh, laura.mitchell at york.ac.uk. And that will be in the show notes as well. Or maybe it won't be because you might start getting spammed by bots that crawl email addresses off of WordPress. Meh, something like that. <laughs> it's just nice to have the attention sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> well, thank you so very much to you listeners for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us if you so choose to all, through all of your favourite apps, feeds, iTunes and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also follow us and get in touch via, at the moment, Twitter at time of recording. Um, I'm at Pedagodzilla. Um, I'm not really on Twitter much anymore, but you can look out the top of my house and I'll be on semaphore with my little flags <laughs> going, listen to Pedagodzilla, whatever that is in semaphore. <laughs> it's going to be really long. You're going to be out there in the cold for quite a while, Mark. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's um, Astret. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, if you did, okay. Um, if you did, then great. We're, we're we're pleased as punch for you. That was the whole objective. We've literally we live we die for your enjoyment. Um, and if you hadn't, if you haven't enjoyed yourself, then why not send a very strongly worded letter to Mark? What's your address? <laughs> <laughs> we love you lots, and we'll see you next time on Pedicotilla. Bye bye now. Bye. Cheerio. <laughs> <laughs>